Hello and welcome to the 42.e Rugby Show. We're live here in Dahomey and Nesbitt. My name is Gavin Casey. This is brought to you by Volkswagen. Um, a fine car, uh, Volkswagen. <laughs> if you're going to buy a car, make it a Volkswagen. Uh, I am joined tonight by two very special guests. The first one, I mean, look, were it not for injury, God knows where rugby might have taken this man. I mean, when he did step away from the Irish rugby scene, there was a six-month period of mourning in the 42 comments section. It was really difficult to get over, but uh, I'd just like to, for you guys, to give him a big welcome. It's uh, Mr. Murray Kinsella. Thank you, Gavin. Thank you very much. More of that, more things. Our main guest tonight doesn't need much of an introduction, but I can say that uh, he is the man who did this. He drives a Volkswagen as well. In terms of <laughs> Are we providing the commentary? Or, uh, there he is, like a teddy bear. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome Stephen Ferris. Well, big man, how are you getting on? Not too bad, not too bad, yeah. Um, good times, 2011 World Cup, nobody gave us a chance against Australia. Um, what a what a tournament. Uh, unfortunately, we slipped up against Wales, but yeah, I'm good. Obviously, hung the boots up now. It's hard to believe it's coming up four years uh, at the end of this season. Like, I ended up hanging the boots up when I was 28, um, injured myself when I was 26. So, uh, yeah, that's the way it goes. But uh, very privileged to have played the game of uh, rugby for so many years professionally. And um, just a mad Irish, Ulster and Irish supporter now, getting behind the boys, and it's just brilliant to see them. Uh, Irish rugby, and I think everybody, everybody would agree on a crest of a wave at the minute. So it's, uh, I'm great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> the foreword to your book is written by none other than Rory McIlroy. I'm talking, of course, about Stephen Ferris. You can get it at Eason's.com. It's actually uh, the second best Irish sports book written in the last couple of years. Uh, you might have seen the best one there just as you came in the door. But uh, the foreword is written by Rory McIlroy. He says, I always felt it was inevitable that someone so physical would end his career earlier than others. It is more likely that players like him, who make big plays, land the huge hits, will suffer a physical toll. I would like Stephen, I would liken Stephen to a finely tuned Ferrari or a racehorse. They are likely to break down more, but it is only because the, the, they perform so close to the edge and are pushing limits all the time. That was Roy McIlroy. Um, I mean, libelous comments against Ferrari, of course. <laughs> Famously, Volkswagens don't break down. <laughs> but is it something? that you would have been cognizant of yourself when you were playing uh, that because of the, I suppose, ferocity with which you played that maybe your career was going to at some point come to an end prematurely? You're mentioning my limited company name and everything. Ferocity limited. Uh, thank you very that much. That was intentional, yeah. Yeah, yeah, intentional. Ferocity. We're also brought to you by ferocity. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like I played the game and I've said this numerous times, people may have heard it, like it didn't matter if it was Edinburgh on a Friday night at, uh, at Ravenhill or Kingspan as it is now, or if it was in a Grand Slam decider against Wales in 2009 Millennium Stadium, I played 100 miles an hour all the time. Why? Because I enjoy playing like that. And if I turn back the clock and go, what would I have done differently? You know, not too much. There, a few of the injuries that I um, received over the years, it was, you know, real accidental kind of stuff. I remember playing against uh, one of the Italian teams standing there at the side of the scrum. We got a push over try, and um, I was standing with my hand in the air, 
uh, cheering the lads on and their tight head prop just came around and fell and my knee was slightly flexed and he fell into me. Like that's just unlucky. Do you know, that's, that's not me absolutely piling into somebody and getting tackled badly. So yeah, that was before the 2011 World Cup. I was out for six months with injury with that. Um, again, that Friday night, 2nd November 2012, and it was actually against Edinburgh. Um, and I just stepped, I actually jumped up to catch a high ball, caught the high ball, went over my ankle slightly, and felt it just like jar. And I got a bit of treatment, just ran it off as you do. Ten minutes later, just stepped off it, and one guy hit me high, one guy hit me low, and, and done serious, serious damage. And I knew as soon as it happened that I was in, uh, you know, a world, a world of pain, a world of difficulty because the swelling didn't go down. I'd say for about nine months, like it was just. If anybody's seen Jeez. any pictures of my ankle on Instagram, like it was black, like it really was. Numerous scans, everything, and they couldn't determine what the the injury was at the time because there was just so much swelling in the joint. So long story short, you know, three operations later to try and fix it, I ended up getting bone taken away, tendons put back in, bone over the tie, all the rest of it. Um, and I tried to make a comeback, that, uh, that game against Scarlets where I come on and made a big hit. But before I took the pitch, I knew my rugby career was over. Um, I, I knew it was coming to an end and it's pretty difficult to get your head around like, do you know? But if I was to go back to your question there, I love playing, I love running around smashing people and I love, that's what, <laughs> that's, that's what I got so much out of the game of rugby was uh, that feeling of trying to be the best player on the pitch every single time you take, you take it and people judge me on my performances nearly every game I played, I, I, I played and people were kind of talking about me after the game and I, and I really really liked that. Um, but yeah, it all came to an end on that night in 2012 when I busted myself. Do you ever look at it now and, and think, maybe a match last weekend, how would I do in that game? How would I do in a Joe Schmidt team? Have you ever thought about that? I don't think me and Joe would have got on, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's, I know we're probably going to touch on it, but he's very, very structured. Um, I was kind of given a bit of a free role. Um, you know, if I seen an opportunity to get out of the line and, and, and take somebody out, or uh, you know, when I was carrying, I threw an offload and. Uh, there was a couple of games, I think, against Italy. Peter Romani's first cap. I made a, two or three different line breaks. Three or four of those offloads went to hand. One maybe didn't. And like coming from camp now, if offloads don't go to hand, you know, Joe is really unhappy. And it's all about playing the percentages and everything else. We all know that. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure how it would fare, uh, to be honest. Um, Joe kept in close contact throughout my injury process, which was brilliant of him. He was like, Stevie, like, I want you to play for me, I want you to play for Ireland, What's, how's the ankle feeling, what's the, the, the progress going like? And I was just honest with him, I said, it's not looking good here. Okay, well, we're going to extend your contract for another six months to try and get you to turn a corner. You know, I was very, very thankful to the RFU for, for me, first of all, anybody that's read the book. Um, <laughs> Get it out there. Read the book. Man and Ball, available in Eason's. Eason's, yeah, or Amazon, five stars, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a great read. Um, I signed a contract in Japan. Uh, I was going to play for a team called Coca-Cola Red Sparks. Signed, sealed, all I needed to do was get myself fit. And, the, and for me, it was to go away for eight or nine months, pick up a paycheck, play and come back. Chatting to Vern Cotter, who was at Claremont, I was on the phone to him three or four times. More or less, there was an agreement in place that I would go over and play for Claremont. Uh, there was a guy called Voss Lou, if you remember Voss Lou, the long hair, yeah, who yeah. played. Um, I was going to come in and replace him, and then come back and be back playing within Ireland for the 2015 World Cup. You know, that was that's what I had kind of planned in front of me. That didn't <coughs> materialise just because of a, of a bad injury. So um, yeah, it's it's tough, but playing for Ireland was 
the, the highlight and pinnacle of my career because it was just uh, meant everything to me. Yeah, I mean, you touched upon the injury, Joe Schmidt, Clermont, Japan. Uh, I've got no questions left. <laughs> it's um, one of the things I was going to ask you about that comeback game in 2014. I mean, you've been out 15 months at this point, like, and there's a moment, obviously, you mentioned it, where I think your first, literally, your first involvement was this massive hit. It was uh, against uh, Christian Phillips, was it? The yeah, 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 15, yeah. Talk me through that moment, firstly, just what it was like to be back on the pitch after that spell out. And I think, particularly now that you've mentioned it, another question I was going to ask you, like, was, were you cognizant of the fact that even though I'm playing here, I'm playing on borrowed time, that this is going to come to an end probably shortly? I was warming up, like, I was warming up on the sidelines, going up and down, and my feet, I have women who suffer from neuromas in their feet for wearing, from wearing high heels. I know like, well, yeah. You know well. Um, I suffer from that now and it was really, really bad. Like it was just having rugby boots on or football boots on and having two or three stones in, in there. And when you're running, it was just agony. And it's just all because of no flexion in my ankle joint whatsoever. And it was just warming up and I was hitting bags and I was going, are they gonna bring me on here? What's the story? Because the ankle just felt, and it was so taped up, you know, so taped up, my knee was taped up, and I was just looking at myself going, geez, I'm 28, like, you know, I'm just absolutely you know, butchered here. So, get on, Ruben Pinar said, somebody called the five-man line-out, Nick Williams come off, and Ruben Pinar kind of gave me an odd, and, you know, anybody who watched Ruben Pinar's box kicks were on the money all the time. And again, I went out of the line to make that hit. You know, I didn't stay in the line. Uh, I was seeing an opportunity in front of me to kind of put pressure on, where, now you don't really see that as much. You mm. kind of see everybody holding their line and making sure that they're all rigid and sticking to the structures and everything. And I, I heard after it and made that, made that, uh, and all her was bang and the crowd just went nuts. And yeah, it was a great, great feeling. But I got up and it was like, oh, thank God for that. The ankle made it through, <laughs> you know, because it was. Uh, I played three more games, suffered my only concussion in my career a week later, and then I was like, what's What's going on here? What's the point of this? Like, it's just not going to work out. Christian Phillips, who you hit, welcomed you back, I believe, as well. I uh, lying on the floor and he's like, good hit, bud, in the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, cheers, thanks, mate. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the Welsh lads always get on really well with them. But uh, yeah, it was, again, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, one of those moments that I can take away as, as a really good memory. Um, because yeah, it was one of the last home games that I played. Um, and yeah, it was a great hit. Another talking point, people talk about it all the time. And uh, that's, I kind of went out in my career in a, a bit of a high, albeit it was out on an injury, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Um, like while on the topic of Ulster, obviously the high profile departure of Les Kiss recently, making a lot of headlines naturally, do you feel that Kiss I'm not. Were you the one writing saying last Christmas for after, over the Christmas that was period? Him. That was that Murray. That's a Murray special. <laughs> I know. Definitely He's looking at me now. <laughs> is he is he a scapegoat here? Given like that, there seem to be structural problems going on at Ulster. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that. Bryn, Bryn Cunningham, who's operations director, he does the hiring and firing. He's now looking after all the off-field stuff. Um, has come out this week and said this is a fresh start. You know, Les Kiss is now going. We need to lay foundations. We need to give our stakeholders and fans, you know, something to get behind. And I was like, well, we're not trying to do that two years ago when you signed Les Kiss. Yeah. You know, and I'm just like, that's that's three coaches. Sorry, four coaches gone in the last three years. Ulster needs stability. They need a coach to come in for the long term. The club needs longevity. It needs 
foundations put in place and it needs realistic goals. It needs to be go right, we're going to try and make a, a, a European quarter final. Instead of coming out and saying, uh, the CEO, of, as you've seen in my comments over the last number of years, we're going to be the world's best team within five years. We're going to win this. Uh, we're going to win the European Cup within five years. We're going to win two leagues within five years. And I'm sitting scratching my head going, is this guy real? We got the final against Leinster and got absolutely hockeyed by the best team in the world. You know, that's, and then there was guys retiring, guys leaving. At that stage, yes, we had a fantastic team, but that team never stays together for more than two, three seasons before guys, you know, venture off to different, uh, different clubs and that. So, yeah, Les to me, anybody who knows him or has worked with him or chatted to him, he is one of the nicest guys that you'll meet. He is so dead on. Um, would never pass you by without saying hello. Very approachable, um, but I think been handed the reins of the poison chalice up at Ulster was just too much for him. Um, it was his first job that he was the man in charge. He worked under Joe, he worked under Deck, he'd worked under other coaches. Um, and I think just everything got on top of him. Uh, he's very, you know, when he was being interviewed, he, he just he didn't come across confident. He didn't come across, he didn't give the fans what they wanted. Um, and, you know, he, for me, he was, he's been a dead man walking for the whole season. Just the results, if anybody watched Ulster versus Treviso, Andrew Trimble last minute try, Ulster versus Dragons last minute try, Christian Leilofano missed the, the conversion to win it, draw. Then you know, the Southern Kings, they conceded, what, seven tries or something against the Southern Kings, the team they're playing uh, tomorrow night. You know, it's it's the man, it's that man who it's the same in football, and that's the way rugby's going. The more money it's being pumped into it, like Les was on serious cash, like serious serious wedge uh, at Ulster Rugby, um, and if he's not producing, if the man in charge isn't producing, then he's going to be the guy that takes the takes the ball. And when the pressure comes on, I think he was probably a little bit guilty of of taking too much responsibility, not letting other people do their roles within the within the setup. He feels the pressure. He's getting paid well, he feels, I have to fix this, I have to fix defence, I have to fix attack, and suddenly you're kind of alienating your coaching team as well, and, and those kind of guys aren't, aren't very happy. Yeah, we chatted about it earlier on there, just before we come on, and chatting about uh, Declan Kidney. Like, Declan Kidney done very, 5% of the coaching, yeah. but like, he's won a Grand Slam, you know. <laughs> but he let, you know, he delegated very well, he let the good coaches do their own thing, like Paul O'Connell, more or less coach the line out, you know, Gerd Small's input and other people coming in, taking the ruck or whatever. But he was good at that. He was good at man managing people. He was good at keeping guys on their toes. When it came to team selection, who picked the team? Declan Kidney. But he didn't do all the coaching, but he was standing on the sidelines, assessing everything, mm. you know, and uh, people pressure on putting lads. pressure on lads. <laughs> and uh, I, think, I think Les just, when he came under pressure, he tried to do more instead of probably doing less. Yeah, wow. that was Decky's strength. I remember I, when I was a very young fella, I went to a monster training session, called up with the big lads, I was, I was wide-eyed, and uh, Decky didn't say a word. He stood on the sideline for the entire session, and I said, is that, is that what he does? Yeah. <laughs> but I felt the pressure from him. I actually felt, by him saying nothing, he was actually getting more out of me. It was, it was a strange experience. I used to just walk past him and go, well, how are you getting on? <laughs> I was like, uh, I'd like yeah. to apologise to all the people from Cork in the audience. <laughs> I mean, fuck that. Uh, that I was like, uh, good Deggy. <laughs> Grand. Yeah. What was it? I was like, right, see you later. <laughs> Freaky. What was it, a team talk under Kidney like then? Like, as in, we've seen footage of Eddie O'Sullivan, his predecessor on RTE documentaries yeah. or whatever, and he's, you know, just so, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Is, was Kidney similar? Or? Well, he could lose his temper, all right. Yeah, he, he, you know, 
his face could go very red <laughs> um, a lot of times. But uh, again, he understood who his senior players were, who were the best lads to drive the team. So instead of Decky standing up and trying to get the boys boys riled up, you know, somebody like Paul O'Connell, you know, was he? We listened probably listened more to Paul than we did to Decky, just because he's he's our teammate. He's the be he was the best player that I ever played with. You know, and everybody respected him so much. So, like he was the man we just kind of listened to. So he got the team going. Brian was very much he, Brian captained Ireland the mo most of the times that I played, but he was very much into touching on the game plan, what roles and responsibilities you're going to be given. You know, where you know, Paulie would have been get up and get stuck into them. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and then you had O'Callaghan beating his head off some locker somewhere. Like. <laughs> Losing even more brain cells, he can't afford. He, he, he can ill afford to do. He can ill afford to do that. Yeah, uh, but like everybody, kind of done their own thing. And just to kind of elaborate on on the point of uh, of like team talks and that, you know, everybody's different. Like I yeah. sat in the corner and maybe had a towel or a jersey over my head and just sat and thought about the first kick off if it came down my channel, what I was going to do with it. You know, if it was off the tail of a line out, and I was saves a five man line out. Did Johnny want me inside him or outside him? That didn't sound right, did it? Um, <laughs> yeah, or outside. <laughs> we can cut it. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Both are going to be disgusted. Oh, Where other guys were literally, you know, puking in the toilet or going nuts. You know, Donegal Callahan do mad press ups in the middle of <laughs> in the middle of the changing room. So everybody was different. But when it came to that huddle, and you were just about to cross the whitewash, you know. Generally, those conversations that were being had at that time was by Paul or by Brian. Mm. I, I can't transition into France versus Ireland without asking you about something I asked you about last year, which was, I think it was a 2011 World Cup warm-up game against France. You got in a spot of bother with, uh, was it Dimitri Sarzewski in the yeah. tunnel? Mm -hmm. You mentioned Paul O'Connell there. I, I think he, uh, he may have intervened in some way. Yeah, I, I was pretty public that Actually, where, where's the sighting? Is it long here where you go down for for the sighting? If somebody gets sighted, there's like it's literally on oh, the, the street. Yeah, yeah, the office. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, actually yeah. the it's bar. Just down the street. <laughs> yeah, it's around the corner. So it was down a couple of times. A guy called. <laughs> no, 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 I wasn't in the wrong. A guy called David Atube or David Atube, yeah, yeah. if uh, in a French accent, and he eye gouged me, um, and it was really, really bad. Anybody wants to Google it, like it was a really bad eye gouge. But I had no idea who, who had done it at the time. And a guy called Oliver McVeigh, who was um, a photographer up north, f for some reason, like the, the whistle had blown, but for some reason just kept snap, 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 snap. And you can see it after the game, I had no idea who'd done it. After the game, you can see that literally the guy's finger buried in my eye. And they tried to deny it and saying that he didn't realize and all the rest of it and all that carry on. Um, but yeah, Dmitry Sarzewski, David Atube's friend, playing there and they were calling me this, that and the other and saying, oh, you're this, you're, you know, because the, the guy got 54 week ban mm. or 70 something week ban and then got it reduced to 50, yeah. like that's a year, right? So of course, this guy's going to lose money, you know, but at the end of the day, like I wasn't the one that I got somebody, he was the one mm. that stuck into me. So yeah, he was getting into me, getting into me and I went to shake his hand at the end of the game sporting gentleman that I am. <laughs> and I went up and went, ah, oh, good game, because they actually won. Yeah. And, and he went, oh, you whatever. Like, <laughs> can you lip read? Are you allowed to curse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I just went, oh, all right. And I kind of shoved him. 
and I was it, and we're walking into the tunnel. And again, I thought it'd be the bigger man, and of course, clapping each other off, slapping each other. And I went, I went like that, just kind of looked, and he went, I guess here, and called me something else. And I like, boom, shoved like in the chest, pretty hard. And um, he kind of went at me, and like Paul just went, no, no, no. no, no. <laughs> 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 I was like, ah, yes. <laughs> Psycho's got my back. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I believe by all accounts that Sarzewski from a couple of chats with Sexdoor with um, Raj, like he obviously coached at that, that he's a nice guy, you know. So look, I don't, I don't know what came of it, but um, yeah, it was all from that eye gouging incident, and yeah, he got what he deserved. When uh, what? <laughs> when Johnny Sexton drops back in the pocket, 370 yard, eight yards from goal, <laughs> and land, like, what are you thinking at that moment, even before the kick? Because I know my personal interpretation of it was because I was watching it on TV, and he was actually so far away that he was off camera. The ball goes back, and I'm like, no! What, what are you thinking? What are you thinking at that moment? Like, you've played with him, so you can, you know what he's capable of. Obviously, are you confident as a player having played with him that he's going to land this or? I think it's about time you invested in a widescreen TV, to be honest. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair. <laughs> I was actually in a pub in Dublin, and everybody was like this, just like watching, going through the phases, and, and the next thing, just the place went crazy, because I think it was unexpected. There was actually one or two, I think it was Ian Henderson carry, mm. um, and then the next carry, I can't remember. Standard. Who, standard, and it was yeah, just like carry, a yeah. tiny bit of momentum, like two, three yards. And he just went bang, give me it. And I haven't been in that situation where you've needed a drop goal to win a game. Well, I have, but not a game that really matters. And it's, I've been on the, the other end of it where I've been defending. And it's easy to just get up and tackle, get up and tackle, get up and tackle. And I think CJ Stander came out in the media and said, once you go through six or seven phases, you bring yourself to a dark place and you just keep getting up and you keep going. Yeah. And like, I would say those boys, Henderson, Omani, um, Stander, like Levy, those guys, I was just watching it going, how are they still getting up? And they looked fresh, they were still getting up and they were still yeah. carrying it. It's interesting actually, crazy. if you go back to the All Blacks match in 2013, that was a massive lesson for Joe Schmidt as a coach. Um, we were talking to Mike McCarthy during the week and he explained that after that match, Schmidt sat them down and he said, look at this clip, it was like four and a half minutes, basically the ball in play the whole time. And he said, the All Blacks came out the other side of this and beat us. So from that day, I think every week, at the start of the week, they do a session where it's literally four and a half minutes long. They blast them at an intensity that's actually higher than match intensity. So that when they got into a situation, it, was, it ended up being like over four years down the line, they were actually prepared for it. So it was interesting to get that little insight from Mike, and, I and I that's how long-term Joe is. When yeah, you, I never knew that. Like, that's, uh, that's unbelievable, and is, that's just good coaching. You know, yeah. that's playing mind games with the players. You know, there's been some crazy stories of... Uh, of some of the mind games that come out of camp, the whole Simon Zebu thing, you know, because he wasn't in great shape, and you know, he went up to the, the, the food and he, he like got a burger or something, and he set the burger down in the plate, and like Joe walked past him through a couple of sachets of uh, mayonnaise down and went, enjoy your burger, like, and he's like, oh, cheers, Joe. <laughs> but that's Joe going. You really shouldn't be eating that yeah. burger. You should be going for the healthy option. You can't yeah. enjoy the burger at that point. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, so that's just just Joe. Like, but yeah, that's that's very interesting with the training. But geez, yeah. and when the drop goal went over, like he was getting treated for cramp. He was mm. wet, soggy pitch. I've played there a couple of times. We drew there uh, seventeen all. You know, a few years ago, I never won there. Um, 
flip, what, what, a, what a kick. And then, of course, the pub that it was in just absolutely erupted. <laughs> like it was nice. uh, pints were flying everywhere. And, uh, good, good fun, good fun. Yeah, it was a nightmare in the stadium. Like, yeah. We have to file a, a match report on Final Whistle, not to make my life sound awful, but match report on Final Whistle. Well. Report, <laughs> Over in Paris. My report done. <laughs> right off our Ireland disastrous start. They lose, win the game, they never should have lost. The dropkick goes over, you almost go, completely oh, <laughs> rewrite this. Spamming. But uh, yeah, amazing, amazing moment. But what, what, way, what way would the, if that dropkick had have landed a yard short, everybody's talking about that it was an amazing win, but I think a few people looking at the game have been more critical and saying that it, it wasn't a good performance yeah. by, by Ireland and, and they, they somewhat got out of jail. But like if that dropkick hadn't went over, what would have been the headline? Yeah, it would have been a disastrous start for Ireland and the Six Nations because they were in that position to win. They actually Johnny, had it written. Johnny, so. Johnny misses that penalty to go nine points clear and they needed that separation, I thought. At the time, I was like, you've got to kick this. It's, it's kind of like a little blind spot for him, isn't it? Although I don't think he enjoys that suggestion. He's missed a few from that right-hand side. But if they went there nine points ahead, I think it probably would have been a fair reflection of their control in the game. So yeah. I think they'll be focusing quite a bit on the fact that they didn't get that separation on the scoreboard and, and they kind of... Obviously, it's a massive psychological boost to, to win a game in those circumstances and know that they have that ability now and, and for other teams to know it as well, you know? Yep. They're never going to be clear of Ireland. They always have, uh, what, if it takes five minutes in possession, they do always think, have it. Do you think there's a bit of naivety from the French point of view, that 22 dropout? If Ireland were in that position, I can assure you that Ireland would 99 times out of 100 win that yeah, restart. Yeah. So, like, France didn't even put up a pod, you know? Yeah, Henderson just had a clear run and, and caught it and yeah. you know the away they went. Incredible kick from Johnny and, and they also missed that penalty you know. I don't think they actually knew that Machino could have actually Machino could have actually kicked that penalty. He comes on as a HI replacement. The old rule was that the HI can't actually kick the penalty but he could have kicked it and I think if he'd taken it Ireland probably would have lost that game. Is there any questions on the HIA? No. No. That's wait for the review. Did you uh, did you see the piece Will Greenwood done? Did you did you didn't get a chance to watch that? No, he's kind of he's sticking up for the, the French because really? of yeah. what Nigel Nigel Owen said. Oh, it's ahead. It's yeah. ahead. So basically, that's the that's the work on back from the early early stages of the review. Nigel Owen immediately taps his head when um, when Dupont goes down, and once that trigger is given, the independent match doctor basically has to call for a HIA. So even though the video evidence clearly showed he didn't get banged in the head, the independent doctor has already called for it, so he can't actually go back on his call, because then if it turns out somehow that DuPont gets an actual knock on the head, then there's going to be a massive court case where they say, mm, yeah. this guy should have taken him off the pitch, uh, we called for the HIA. So I think it was just being extremely cautious. It did look bad, and I know the independent doctor was French and all, but I think it's actually quite explainable. Nigel Lawrence taps his head, he thought it was a, a head injury instantly, um, and that was the confusion. So, so it's Nigel's fault. <coughs> yeah. Well, that's been Nigel. He's been he's been kind to us in the past. Like, oh, he so he's he's us, emerged yeah. from that game, and all of a sudden he's taken a lot of heat. Uh, Murray, you were saying beforehand that like yeah. during Joe Schmidt's review, or, like every coach, you explain it. I mean, I'm yeah, like, I don't think like he wasn't the completely decisive factor in that match. But I think if Aaron had lost, Joe would have absolutely blasted him in the media. He did get a few comments in there. He said we weren't happy with them rolling away from the rock, and like there were a few crazy ones in that last passage. Van on the ball for eight seconds. Nigel Owens goes into the ruck and taps him on the head, says, get off that right. ball. Like, you nearly pulled him out. You've yeah, yeah, I've never yeah. seen a ref do that, especially in a position like that after so many phases. So I think Ireland were very unhappy. You know, they do the reviews after the matches. Joe Schmidt has a detailed list of all the wrongs that Nigel did. Apparently this one was extremely long uh, and extremely cutting. So I don't think they were happy with him, but yeah, they got out of jail in the end uh, after an unhappy uh, refereeing performance, I think.
What do you make of the team that was announced today for the weekend? Any major surprises or anybody that you would have liked to have seen included that wasn't? Is Ryan injured? Is there talk of uh, yeah, the word picked is, up an eagle? Or? Yeah, the word is a, uh, a little eagle uh, in his groin, I think, but I think he probably could have played if it was a decider okay. for Grand Slam, he would have played, but I think they're trying to manage him. Like He's 21, yeah. he's got a big future ahead of him, and I think they learned lessons with Carberry and Ringrose last year. Like They played those guys a lot, they played a lot of big tests, and you're seeing now this season, their bodies have broken down a little bit, so I think they're being cautious with Ryan, and probably rightly so. He looks like an exceptional player. He was unbelievable last week. I could not believe the work. Was it 14 carries, 13, 14 carries? Yeah, seven, 17, I think. 17, 17 excuse yeah. me, 17 carries. Like, and he brought off in tackles 60, as well, I think, 10, 11 tackles yeah, or something like that. Yeah. In a game um, where Ireland had no possession as well. Yeah. Um, or had all the possession, it, it rather. It was just amazing. And, but big Devin Turner, like somebody who's been there, done it, you know, at top level. Well, he called the line. I take a bit of pressure off Ian Henderson this week, probably. Um, you can see Henderson be a little bit more destructive, getting more ball in hand. But I think it just keeps it fresh, keeps boys on their toes. They kept the backline the same. Why? Because the backline didn't really, didn't really offer too much in yeah. the weekend there against France. The conditions weren't great. They didn't have as much ball in the multi phase as they probably would have liked. And their starter plays like Joe Smith is just all about structure. A lot of Ireland's tries come off off the top. Uh, Irish lineouts, um, and they just couldn't get across the game line. The French have sure that shored up that inside defence, um, so they'll be trying to pick holes out of that uh, Italian defence in the English game, putting loads of plays together, get the playbook, see what's happening. And this is the team they've come up with to try and execute the game plan. Um, and I think he's not probably not far off. It's great to see the young fella on the bench as well. Hopefully, he gets an opportunity. I actually thought he could have started. You know, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. just keep keep uh, yeah. keep Carney fresh. Carney had, a, apart from for me, one slight mistake of maybe you know on the counter attack uh, from Teddy Thomas. But yeah, I think it's a really good team. Yeah, I think the I think Joe's thinking is to keep that backline together because they, as you say, they were they weren't really familiar with each other. It didn't look that cohesive, especially in the backfield as well. Like that back three hasn't really played together an awful lot. I'm sure they've trained together quite a bit now under Joe. But even things like working their pendulum defence. Uh, linking up on set piece plays, I think he understands that they need to be at a higher level for that Wales game, um, and, and especially with Johnny Sexton starting at ten. You know, mm. people were thinking, get Joey in there, J Joey Carberry to, to to get eighty minutes. But I think he understands that Johnny and that backline have to be firing on all cylinders for that. Is Fergus, for that Wales is game. Fergus McFadden just been released to get game time? He's gone back to Leinster. Yeah. yeah, like it's a chance. To, it's a chance to get Jordan Armour in there. He's been exceptional. It's a it's a kind of easier way to get him into a test match. Bring him on with thirty minutes when that game is opening up. When his footwork with step off both sides you know Conor O'Shea today compared him to a young Christian Cullen and like it's, it's I don't think that's far off you know he's an unbelievably excited but if, player, he, if he comes on and scores two or three tries and when Ireland win the game by 45 points to 10 or whatever he's still not going to be in the match day squad versus Wales yeah I don't know I don't know I think Joe really really rates him and I think if he gives him that really strong evidence that this guy is actually a game changer possibly in a big match I wouldn't put it past him like he's a really exceptional talent mm. I, I, you know is the potential that the tournament might actually come down to points difference? Does that come into Schmidt's mind at all? Like in starting Sexton, I think in particular over Carberry, where you want things to run as smoothly as possible. You want to have, like, I suppose, maximise what you're taking out of the game in terms of points scored. Like, it's not impossible. Yeah. That that's you'd hate to be kicking yourself the way England have been twice yeah. when we caught them on yeah. points difference. They can't take any chances. They got they've got to build that cohesion into those big games to come. They got to get a bonus point. Obviously, England and Wales got them last weekend, so they've already set the standard. And uh, There is a little bit of freshness in there in the back row. It's good to see Jack Conan. Like you mentioned, maybe you might not have fit into Joe's structures. I think he's yeah. had to adapt his game. He, he likes an offload. 
he's maybe likes to get out of line a bit at times. Joe has worked on with that. I think his defence in particular was something they pinpointed in November. They said, you need to get more repeat efforts. You need to be back on your feet quicker. And you saw in those two Exeter games for Leinster, he was really strong in defence. So I think he showed Joe, I can learn, I can do these things. Um, and it's great to see Dan Levy in that starting team as well. Another guy who could go on to be a starter for Ireland. Yeah, from, like, I thought CJ Stander had a very poor first half. Like He got the ball stripped off him a couple of times. He just seemed like he wasn't 100% there. And he still, like, Fair play to the guy. He sticks his hand up to carry the ball at every single opportunity. But sometimes it's sometimes it's 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 okay to let Dan Levy, who's fresh off the bench, come on and take a couple of those carries. So yes, the stats say that he has 25 carries, whatever it is. But 21 of those might be for one yard mm. or two yards. Yeah. Do you know, and I've noticed that a lot about his game that he carries a hell of a lot, but doesn't actually have a lot of meter each yeah. for it's for those carries. Very similar against Argentina. Yeah. Game in, in which he started poorly, he did score a try, probably a pivotal try in the game, but again, by far the highest number of carries, and yet his yardage was similar to all of his fellow forwards. It yeah. wasn't like he was... You can't, you can't question his work rate. No, you know, like it's, it's absolutely huge. But somebody like Jack Conan might carry the ball half as much as he does and make twice as many metres as he does. Yeah. So it's kind of weighing up the options, and, and maybe having somebody like Peter Romani, who isn't a, a really strong carrier, then... CJ Stander starting maybe takes a little bit of pressure off him where he can be a pest at the breakdown, work on his on his line out um, and be that inspirational leader that he is. Um, and maybe CJ takes that off him, but Jack Conan for me is he's got all the ability. If 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 I'm picking a team, I pick athletes and he is an athlete to have in the back row. Yeah, it just keeps a bit of pressure on CJ. Like massive workload. I think he hit 42, 43 rocks as well. Mm. So he probably has earned a little bit of a break, but this keeps a bit of pressure on him. It makes him understand, listen, Jack Conan's right behind you. Even with Jack McGrath and Keane Healy, by rotating them, you know, Keane Healy, it's not your position it, just because you're in good form. There's another really good loose head prop. So he's, he's an expert at doing that as well, Joe, keeping guys on their toes, never really settled in the team. Now Dev Toner is fighting for his, his, his first choice status, which was a kind of a guarantee. Like Dev, Dev could be sitting at home going, this is an opportunity here. Like if I have a really bad game, like he could fall, fall down on another, you know, not in the pecking order. Yeah. So Quinn Roo was there in the yeah, bench. Quinn there. Um, he's like, right, you know, I'm going to go out and, and, and absolutely smash this because his international career, he's not getting any younger either. I played under 21s with him. So, like, but Big Dev, everybody kind of gives him a bit of stick, you know, about, you know, he's a lineup operator, he's pretty one dimensional, but he gets the job done every single time he takes the pitch. I have a lot of admiration for him. Yeah. yeah. Are we okay to run a bit of analysis? Uh, Ireland's defence probably won't be tested hugely. We're attack first, I think. Are we doing attack first? Yeah. I apologise. Ireland's <laughs> attack will be tested. Uh, <laughs> Ireland's attack will come to the fore against Italy at the weekend. Murray, uh, take us through. Yeah, like there's, there's been loads of talk about the attack. Obviously, after they had so much possession, 70% uh, possession, so many massive multi-phase passages where they just couldn't break, uh, where they just couldn't break the, the French down. Like a lot of that discussion is always like kind of big picture, philosophical kind of things. Like, do they need a second playmaker? Mm. Do they need to change the game plan? Like in camp, that's just an unrealistic kind of debate. They don't talk about that. They won attack review meeting at the start of the week. They fix little things and they move on. You know, Joe's not going to look at our articles and go, actually, fuck it, let's offload everything. Ah, yeah. you know, I've, got this, I've got this badly wrong. He's going to look at the little details. And we're going to look at some of them here in our, in our clips. Uh, little things that he'll probably have picked out uh, as contributing to a, to a rather poor uh, attacking performance. Uh, this is actually encouraging. You're seeing James Ryan. He's one of this kind of new breed of forwards we discussed it last week. He's going to go out the door with his, uh, 
out the back door with that pass. And you can see there's an opportunity for Ireland. Uh, Josh van der Fleer here runs this line and he's trying to uh, attract in Jalibert, this guy. He's trying to get him to turn his shoulders in. And he's quite successful in doing that. You can see there Jalibert is committed to the tackle um, and the ball is out the back door to Bundyaki. Here's the opportunity now. And what Bundyaki does is he pretty much ships the pass on within two, within two steps. What he really needs to do is get at that inside shoulder of Chavancy there. Chavancy is the midfield defender. Like if Bundyaki can just stick him and turn his shoulders in a little bit, the opportunity outside is going to be absolutely massive. Instead, you see Aki just ship the ball on and you see Chavancy is gone there. He's gone on the drift straight away. He's getting across the pitch. Jalibert is going to try and link up with him. And then Robbie Henshaw, quite similar, ships on the ball and Ireland end up with a two on two on the outside when it could have been possibly a, a three on one or a two on one at least. Um, with Conor Murray as well, they're linking up on the inside. Like Joe picks out on that little thing, it's like another couple of steps on the ball for Bundyaki. And what is a really good line break anyway, and they get three points out of this, possibly could have been a try scoring opportunity. Um, and I think Aki has, has those things at the top level to learn. Our next example is offset piece. Joe Schmidt, we were talking about it before, he's absolutely <coughs> massive on everyone uh, getting their role right. And one of the big roles is decoy play. He's huge on this. He pushes the players all the time. He talks about like, it's natural human instinct to, to react to a kind of aggressive perceived threat. So like, you know, if someone swings a fist at you, you're gonna flinch. He talks about that the same way with his decoy runs, like be an aggressive threat. Even if you don't block a guy, even if you don't sit him down completely, it's gonna have a knock-on effect out the line. And you see in this example, uh, we're gonna look at CJ Stander first. He's trying to get outside Guirado um, and just and block him off basically. But you can see Guirado just slips outside him there. So that's your first decoy. That's pretty poor. That's a pretty poor, you know, decoy runner there. You know, he's got to come back, get, let let the ball literally just get him, but get him behind him and try and sit somebody down. And like he, he's literally just ran into space there, and, and the friends have went, "What are you doing?" And just ran <laughs> yeah. on, yeah. you know. And, and Joe will be livid about that. He's like, "CJ, this play cannot work if you don't do your job. Like, if the first rule gets broken, then." The whole, the the whole play is out the window. Well, you're going to see the chain link of, yeah. chain link of effect. Like, yeah, he's, a, he's a, basically a dead decoy. The next guy is, is Bundyaki here. You know, can he sit someone down? Can he block off someone in that defensive line? Again, Jalibert gets to his outside shoulder and he's still part of that defensive line. He can drift on out. The third decoy line is Josh van der Fleer here. And again, same thing. You run it on and you can see Jalibert and even Lamara switch past him, uh, drift past him rather. And then you get to the outside edge and look, it's actually a three on two for France on the outside edge. They have an overlap in defence off a set piece, which is, which is crazy. You know, Joe Schmidt will be ripping his hair out over this uh, during the week and, and running through them. They actually do, Keith Earl has a great feed, gets inside, makes a bit of a gain line, but um, they're just so reliant on those set piece strikes to get over the gain line and play off. If you, if you fail on that, on that first phase, then you're, you're in big trouble. I think, you'll see, I think you'll see these exact same plays come out against uh, Italy. I think they'll try and get them on the, on the outside. They'll try and get them into the wider channels and they'll be trying to execute exactly that, except do it, do it right. Mm -hmm. And if they do do it right, like that first, Johnny Sexton looks up, sees Vakatawa is really deep, really wide, disconnected. He's like, right guys, we need to get it on the outside. As soon as they get it on the outside, honestly, if, uh, if the midfield just take it up, pass and give, it's a, it's a walk-in in the corner. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing what two or three steps can, can do to hold the defence. So yeah. yeah, they'll be working there's, on that all week to get it so right. Much Another couple of other things, just putting your skills under pressure. We've talked about the forwards passing. Um, and this is just a small example. Uh, we're kind of zoomed out, but Tyke Ferland's got on the ball there and he has Peter Manny on his outside shoulder. Like, can he drop that little tip on pass there? I know the weather's poor and 
it's a sloppy kind of conditions, but if you just give that little tip on when the one guy rushing on him, O'Mahony goes into a hole, instead they get smashed back behind the gain line. Um, and I again, I think that has to come from Pete, it's not coming from Tag. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. Pete's got to get two or three yards wider uh, and say, yeah, I'm on your outside, give me the tip on. Instead, he's just kind of standing, right. standing there waiting for the, the breakdown, like, which, which isn't a bad thing, you know, their ball security is priority. So, but you're 100% right. If they can get on that outside shoulder, there's four or five yards to, to get a gain line. Yeah, because even with the forwards passing, we were talking to Tyke Ferland during the week, and we've seen them go out the back door, but he's talking about, I need a trigger call from one of the backs. You know, it's not my decision. I'm not as comfortable making that decision. I need someone behind me, or in that case, alongside me. Uh, another example here, not to pick on Peter Manny, but uh, they make a good gain line there. You saw Aunt Bundyaki getting that little roll on the ground. Furlong makes the pass, and then Johnny at the back door. Uh, and Omani just forces that pass. <laughs> Roger well, Federer, like it was. But he, there's a th there's three there's three backs there. If he can actually, if we just run it back, if he can catch pass, and I know it's easy to pick this out when we can pause it and fast forward and everything. But if he can just do a catch pass, draw Lamara, uh, there's a three on one on the outside, and again they can link up with those those inside support players. So little little opportunities. I think that's on phase six, phase seven. You can see how unhappy Johnny Sexton is, um, and then. Little detail after the tackle, Johnny Sexton puts up a great kick, really good competition from uh, Rob Carney, he's brilliant at that. He didn't actually get to the ball there, but he gets a bit of contact in the air, which Joe Schmidt loves, um, and the ball falls for Ireland. Conor Murray gets on the ball, but I think Joe Schmidt will have picked this out. What's your next action? You're on the ground, you're waiting for your support, how hard are you fighting? Murray kind of tries to tuck the ball down to the ground, but Schmidt will be asking, why aren't you working hard? Why aren't you wriggling forward? Why aren't you rolling up the pitch? Why aren't you getting that upper body back up the field? Um, and you can see it ends with a, a turnover for France. We often look at the support players and go, oh, they weren't there quick enough. But Schmidt, he's, his first thing is that player on the ground. He'll actually say that player on the ground is sometimes even more important than, than the clear. See, I would probably disagree that the ball fell for Ireland there. If Ireland just wanted the ball more. There was a couple of French yeah, guys that yeah. could have got on it quicker. But if you're on the pitch, Leinster calls scraps. So if there's any ball that hits the floor, like Fergus McFadden just runs around the pitch, just scraps, scraps, scraps. Looking for the ball. Uh, but it's something that's drilled into them in training. If a ball goes down, you'll see two or three of the Irish boys, and they don't even have any opposition, flying straight onto the ball. And sometimes it is about just who, who wants it that little bit more. So. Yeah. 50-50 balls can work out in your favour if, if you wanted that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he wants to bring them bring that fight to everything. Uh, this is a good example from Keane Healy. He gets tackled there onto his back. And you can see Gruado uh, is a threat over that ball. But you just get that little bit of extra detail. He's, he's squeezing his upper body to get up back up the field. And Ireland uh, regained that possession. So they're the little things I think Joe probably tends to pick out rather than focusing on, OK, hang on, do I drop Rob Carney, put in a second playmaker? Do I need to rip up my playbook? They're the, they're the things you'll really focus on. Excellent, thank you very much boys. Uh, before we get a couple of questions and head to half time, um, just something you alluded to there Murray, like Schmidt is absolutely obsessed with this, what he describes as body ball, I think it's what he calls it, where it's almost more important for the man who takes the ball to the ground to actually fight and get it back. Not more important, but it's equally as important as it is for the players in support to get over the ball and, and protect it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like he's, he's massively focusing on those little, as most top coaches are, the basic little details. The, the, the core skills, like his set-piece plays are unbelievably detailed, his phase play even, everyone has to know exactly which rock they're getting to, but it all boils down to those little uh, basic skills, these comp competition in the air, that box kick, they had a few poor ones I thought yeah. last yeah. day where Conor Murray just went slightly too long early in the game when they're trying to target Vakatawa, you know, they built I think a three-phase uh, kind of kicking attack to, to put the ball in him, but it's just too long, 
um, and that can kind of sap energy from your team whereas that perfect kick allows Keith Earls to get up, compete and possibly win the ball back. He, he's massively focused the, on that stuff. The kicking game for Ireland is huge, always has been when Joe Smith's in charge. But for me, if Ireland go past four or five phases, they're multi-phase. They, it's not that they look clueless at all, it's just that they look predictable and that's something that they got to work on is that you know, when they ran 41 to 42 phases, you know, they didn't really go anywhere. There was no kind of line breaks. Yes, they were just trying to get in position for a drop goal, but it's trying to execute try scoring opportunities. And they are there. We can see them, they are there, but they have to try and execute them. And, and that's the challenge. Yeah, I think that like, in terms of their attack longer term, he probably is aware of that fact. Like you can't change things now in the, in the tournament and, and, and as we said, change the game plan. But longer term, can he get that second play when he get on? There's so much responsibility on Johnny Sexton. You see when he's on the ground, we analyzed it during the week on the 42. There was one example where he comes around the corner, there's no, there's no uh, plug there. There's no, um, there's no support in the left side, but Conor Murray goes to the right and nothing's organized. There's no one taking control there. And he, he blasts Robbie Henshaw. He's like, why the, why the aren't you organizing But, but you'll be looking at the Leinster games and saying, you know, this, like I, I was, you know, as a, an Ulster man watching Leinster, the brand of rugby that they're currently playing, it's just so good to watch. And the, the, the lads love playing it. You know, they're really enjoying the rugby. So I think, obviously, Ireland are going to get to the where Leinster are with their offloading game and everything. But I think that Joe will be analysing those games and trying to take bits and pieces out of, out of the games, especially because there's a large contingent of Leinster players involved in the squad uh, and, and try and make that brand better. Hmm. What about uh, you guys? Do you have any thoughts, any questions? Can we get a uh, microphone down to these beautiful people? I, <laughs> you're not blackballing us, are you? There's a couple there. Uh, just a question about Ulster rugby. About Ulster rugby? Oh, yeah. <laughs> here we go. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's not that bad. Um, just what you were saying about the lack of consistency, having John O'Gibbs come in in the interim, what would you suggest in terms of like going forward as a coaching option, unless you're planning on... Hanging up the Stevie mic, handing Ferris, in the microphone, <laughs> and going <laughs> we into that. But like, yeah. John O'Gibbs, been, he's been involved in a setup that you've kind of said has failed, essentially. Jared Payne's in the background now while he's injured, training with the team and helping with the coaching. But who do you bring in, or how do you fix the problem if you're saying it's coming from the top? Yeah, well, um, if, if I had the answer, I think it would be in the coaching setup. But it's, uh, I think John O'Gibbs is, is feeling the pressure. Like the the Ulster forward pack just hasn't performed, especially over the Inter Pros, and that's where they get judged quite heavily. Um, he wasn't around for the Connacht game; they got absolutely demolished down in Galway. Um, you know, against Wasps, they get demolished. It just, I think, it all stems from not having a big enough pack, just not having enough ball carriers. You look at the Leinster pack and Munster pack; they've just guys itching at the bit to get out and, and carry ball, where Ulster just don't have it. Marcel could see injured, um, a huge guy. We signed John Diesel. You know he couldn't get onto the Munster team like you know when it was fully fit. So yeah. why did Ulster sign a, a two-year deal like to somebody who's? I just can't get my head around some of the some of the signings. But um, obviously they just thought they needed a big strong guy to try and get them over the game line. And now he's not even involved in the squad tomorrow night. So it's uh, it's a tricky one like, but. Who's going to be brought in to, f to fix this, as I said earlier, the kind of poison chalice that it seems to have been over the last four or five years? I don't think they're going to bring anybody in until the end of the season. They're going to have a whole coaching review 
and look at everything from grassroots right up and see how they're going to fix it. Um, but probably for me, it would be the, the CEO of Ulster Rugby um, probably making a few wrong decisions over the last number of years, um, saying, filling fans full of expectation and hope that they're going to be the best team in the world. And that type of, I, I, I repeat myself because I've said that so many times over the last two years, but I haven't seen Shane come out and give an interview and like, you know, explain why, what his thoughts were behind those comments. Like, the fans are walking out going, world's best team, my arse. You know, well, you know, like of course they are, because the man who's in charge of everything to do with Ulster Rugby said that they were going to be the world's best team. So like, they're very right to kind of say that. Um, but I think they've got a great guy in Bryn Cunningham there. I played with him for numerous years. Smart guy. Um, I think his options have been fairly limited when it comes to signing overseas players. Yes, he's got a couple of good guys, Marty Moore, Jordy Murphy coming up, um, who will definitely bolster the team. But yeah, he's got a lot of work to do, and um, that's a long-winded answer to your question. But uh, I think they'll just hold out to the end of the season and then make a decision from then. Yeah, you mentioned though, Graham's up. Like that is key now. Recalibrate those expectations and start building again. The academy hasn't really produced the same crop of players that like you guys that got to that final, um, and they haven't really tapped into the club game. I don't know if there's a bit of disconnect there. I know some people aren't too happy that it's not joined up. Yeah. I think there's there's chances to. Now start fresh, realise, okay, we can actually get through more through our system. We don't need to sign players from Leinster Academy. We actually have quality in our schools and clubs and we, we just need to tap into that. I think. Yeah, and because the population is greater down in Dublin, that's, yeah, that's no excuse. Like that, that, for me, that is no excuse. But I'm friendly with you know, YDOs who got called into Shane Logan's office only a couple of years ago and told that their jobs were being done away with. Like all these YDOs who are out to make the game of rugby in Ulster evolve and, and to bring young kids on and go to the very corners of Donegal, the schools and coach young kids God that have yeah. gone out. Yeah. <laughs> like to so say, I've done, I've no idea how many of them there was, but like he chopped so many jobs. And where I speak to the people involved in the Leinster setup, like there's so many jobs being given. Massive to try program there, yeah. Massive, huge program. And everybody wants to work for Leinster because they're doing so bloody well. And they've tapped yeah. in, like the, the five counties thing, they've tapped into the whole province, even though it's perceived as probably like Dublin centric. They have tapped in. Let's own everything as well. You know, yeah. like as I know over the last couple of years, you've seen the likes of Sean O'Brien and these mm -hmm. like Ty Furlong. Ty Furlong yeah. All they want to do is talk about farming. You know what I mean? And it has changed <laughs> their perception of yeah. Well, it's great for us as well because Ty's such a good talker as well. He <laughs> loves the story about his dad not having a mobile phone. And really? he's off playing international <laughs> matches away. He can't get in touch with his dad to let him know how it went. <laughs> so, man, yeah. so the more characters like that, the better. Absolutely. <laughs> Anybody else before we uh, wrap up for halftime? Another one there and another one here. Hi, Stephen. Uh, you're known as a physical lad. Uh, is there any other physical... Who's the most physical lad you actually ever played against? That include training as well? Physical lad that I trained with or played with or against? Played against. Or played against. Um, probably Jerome Kino. Played, played for New Zealand. Auckland Blues man years in Japan. Um, there's chat of him possibly signing for a French club, Toulon, isn't it? Yeah. Toulon, is there? Like, he was massive, a beast, like, um, strong boy, really dead on, down to earth. Um, and I, I, I didn't know him, like, but for some reason when we played against other, there was this kind of mutual respect. Um, and he always thought that I was a great player and, and vice versa. But yeah, when he was in his prime, yeah. like 2011 World Cup, you know, he was he was a hard a, hitter. A hard hitter. Um, a few illegal challenges along the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, he was so hit for probably him. Yeah. 
We'll take one from up the front here just before we, um, we wrap up for halftime. And anybody else who has a question, we'll be doing it again at the end. So fear not. Uh, we do have a couple of tickets as well to give away for Ireland versus Italy. The big man will be choosing the winner. So. Cheers. It's a kind of a long-winded question, but this time by James Ryan. Uh, obviously, he's a brilliant player. Uh, whether the comparisons to Bali are a little bit premature, I don't know. But I don't know if you heard Bernard Driscoll on the Friday night before the French game. Kind of had an interesting comment about him being really well-respected. Kind of put a little bit of cast of doubt whether he can take a kneel. He was injured for this game on Saturday. And I wanted to know whether you thought that was maybe a comment on the modern-day second row not having enough dog in them compared to back in the day. Or is it maybe kind of a positive, maybe slightly encouraging call out to Ryan to toughen up a little bit? Yeah, that's, good that's really interesting because we spoke to uh, Mal O'Kelly, who was like teak tough. He's still absolutely massive as well. Yeah, by the way. Nice he, uh, yeah but he's, he's, fat, he's fat now though. Like, he's apparently fat, he's not massive. Like, not yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just a giant, a giant frame. A giant frame. <laughs> he apparently was playing for Malahide up until the last season. I think. I would not enjoy playing against him, to be honest. But anyway, yeah, he, he kind of subtly made that point. He said, Look at Devon Toner. Devon Toner never gets injured. He injures people. Durable. Um, yeah, he said durability is a massive thing for a second row. And I think there was a subtle suggestion that, yeah, sometimes you just have to bite it, but, uh, you know. Talk take, to yeah, yeah. You, know, you just have to deal with the injury, play through the injury. Like, the game has slightly changed as well, though. Like, you know, they're being managed uh, to an unbelievable degree, and yeah. I probably don't get let, allowed to do it as much. But there is a, there is a point there, though. I just it? think the way the game's going, like, you know, Ian Henderson can play in the back row. You know, Ryan, for me, could definitely play in the back row. I just think the more athletes that you have on the pitch, the better. Um, and, you know, long gone the days of just second rows that run around just hitting rocks and making sure that they win line-out ball and hit rocks. You know, that's kind of all, they, all they've done. Um, <clears throat> and I think he's so, so young as well. And yes, he has had a couple of niggles. He's missed games. Um, played for Ireland before he played for yeah, Leinster yeah, yeah, senior yeah. team. But like he, he captained the Irish under 20 side in a World Cup final against England. He's got a lot of unbelievable attributes. And for me, it's, you know, I'd keep the reins on, reins on him. You know, I wouldn't be, you know, I'll have you a bit of a niggle, get out there, suck it up. And to me, he seems like a pretty smart fella as well. You know, if he's in the back of his mind, he's not 100%, then, you know, you go out and let down your side or let down your team and you might not get selected for another year or two. So. For me, it's, it's not about toughening up, it's about managing your own body, and knowing what's right and wrong. Um, and I just think he's got a, just such a big future ahead of him. And I think him and Henderson could be the, yeah, a bit like O'Callaghan O'Connell for the next, uh, the next five or six years, for yeah. sure. You yeah. mentioned James Ryan playing for Ireland before Leinster. O'Driscoll did as well. Do you know who the other one was? Does anyone know? Darcy. No. Uh, yeah, Michael Bent. Good man. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, he's, he's, a, he's an exceptional talent, James Ryan. I think Michael's Tom's making 100 caps for that. Yeah, yeah, he's done yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah, just in terms of James Ryan, yeah, I think managing when he's in the early stage of his career is, is probably sensible at this stage. Yeah, I definitely keep the reins on him. He uh, took a piss next to my tender electric picnic a couple of years ago. That is half time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a million. If you want to go for a point, whatever, uh, work away. We'll be back in about 10 15 minutes. Take your time. <laughs> we'll kick off the second half. Uh, look, Italy this weekend. Conor O'Shea, see like, on the face of it I think it looks like they're making a little bit of progress under him, but also I heard a stat there uh, during the week where like 
if they go throughout this tournament without a win, which they likely will, it'll be the first time since they joined the Six Nations that that will have happened. And therefore, you're kind of thinking statistically they're going backwards. Mm. What has your impression of his tenure been, yeah. or his tenure so far been? Like, he, he said today they have to celebrate small wins. They can't actually celebrate actual wins in test matches. They, they know that if Ireland play anywhere near their potential, they're going to get beaten. He said, if I go into my players and say, listen, lad, great photo, by the way. Uh, listen, lads, uh, we're going we're gonna to beat Ireland. They're, he's out, they'll, they'll laugh in my face. You know? He's very realistic about the job at hand. I think they have made little bits of progress. You can see even the try against England, the first one, the, the loose head prop is making a lovely pass to Andrea Labadi out the back door, then Alan goes over the top. Um, and I think we also have to judge them on their club's performances. Like, that's the big thing for them. You talk about starting at the foundations with Ulster. Italy have to start at those foundations. And Treviso, in particular, have improved. I think they put together four wins in a row in the Pro 14 at one stage. And he's spent a lot of his time uh, working with those clubs. It's actually a director of rugby role, really, more so than the head coach. So I think it's going to take a couple of years for that to pay off at, at the top level. He is excited about some of those young guys coming through, um, but I think they're, they're quite a distance off. And if Ireland don't put a, a massive win on them, it'll be a, a huge shock. I think Ireland, over the last three games, home and away, have averaged 49 points. Um, you know, scoring against Italy, so like if it was a betting man, I would go, probably go close to that again uh, on, on Saturday. I just can't see any player, bar maybe Parise on a really good day, who's better than any of the Irish guys. Um, the game plan, like Conor Shea gets a lot of credit, but like the Treviso team, like Benetton, they're, they're being coached by, is it a Kiwi? Kieran Crowley. Yeah, mm-hmm. Kieran Crowley. I think like Connor's almost um, he's kind of taken a bit of the credit for the way that you know Benetton's played, right. but you know that or he's getting a bit of the yeah credit he, yeah no yeah. he hasn't taken it he's getting yeah. a bit of that credit but we haven't really seen that in the Italian display there against England yes we've seen bits and pieces but you yeah. know England were always going to run out big winners so for me I, I just think Italy and if I was involved in any team it wouldn't. <laughs> Like if, if my coach turned around to me and goes, right lads, we know we're not going to win this one, but it's all about you know winning the small battles. I'd look at him and go, are you mad? It's like we play to win. It's as simple as that. And any Italians that you speak with, you play to, you know, they're they're emotional, they're passionate, and I'd say, you know, a lot of the guys in the change rooms believe that if they pull out their best performance individually to a man, that they could beat Ireland. They, 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 there could be an upset. There's going to be an upset somewhere. Um, and you know that that wouldn't sit well with me, like you know being being told that yeah. ah, we're not good enough lads to beat Ireland. But you know, yeah. I'm not sure about that. Coaches are always like he's buying time essentially for himself as well. Kind of maybe talking about we'll win down the line. But yeah, it is frustrating that it's the same issues again. Like you know they get to 60 minutes and they they get blown away by England, turn, kind of changing their game plan. Let's offload. Let's turn up the tempo. Uh, he did mention that again. The fitness has got better. He he says. But we haven't really seen it. Like, let's see them last an actual 80-minute match. That's it, exactly, because there was such an inevitability about the fact that once yeah. we got to the error mark against England, now I know you thought England were extremely impressive. We'll get to them in a while, but like, there was, it was just so obvious that, that the Italians were going to crumble again, probably similar to ourselves in Rome last year, where, Jesus, I don't know, Craig Gilroy scored a hat-trick in the last yeah. half hour anyway, wasn't it? Like, or yeah. second half. So yeah. Like, yeah. It always happens, and we just need to, see, we need to see progress on the pitch because you know, there's other nations, like Georgia, have been knocking on the door for mm. yep. years, and it, it gets harder and harder to say no to them. Obviously, Italy need to be there competing against the best nations to improve, but it, it must be hard for Georgia to look on and see they haven't actually improved on the pitch, despite yeah. all this talk. It must be frustrating. I, I, I think... Conor O'Shea coming in there, I think he's got a great vision of where he wants Italy to go. 
and he talks well about that, but it's actually implementing that and putting that in place. And what does everybody judge him on? Results. And if he goes 40 points, 40 points, 40 points, 40 points, you know, people are going to go, what on earth is, is going on here? You know, uh, and for me, he, uh, th that vision, I hope, comes, comes through to him because I think he's a really good guy. I don't know him, but he comes across as a really good guy and a realistic guy. Um, so, yeah, let's see how they get on on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> is there a risk then that because it is this vision and it, it is very much long-term that he's waiting for a sort of a, an almost all-encompassing change to be implemented by bringing over like the likes of Michael Bradley and, and these people and that by, I suppose, not affecting what's going on in the pitch in the immediate future, like he probably runs into a brick wall at some point. So like systemically it might change and say seven years down the line they might be a little bit or at least semi-competitive but by then it'll be too late for him to even see that change but it's, it's like in seven years time if results don't go his way he'll not be in a job no but that's, yeah like international rugby is a results driven you know environment and like he can't go to six nations without getting a result that's just not going to happen so uh he talks about all these you know battles and everything else but one interesting point that he made in his post-match interview was that he said at least we're starting to play some proper rugby you know so which I think goes back to that crazy tactic that they used against England to try and even come close to winning the game which they were never going to do but instead of coming up with these stupid ideas they actually play a bit of rugby play a brand of rugby and if they can kind of get that going because they did have a lot of possession against the English yeah, they did. If they can get that going, then maybe a result or two will come over the next couple of years. But um, I think they're going to be up against it for, for the next couple of weeks anyway. Yeah. You'd just love to see Sergio Parise get a couple of wins as well before he bows out. Like I'd say he's getting extremely impatient. Another thing is, at this point, not seeing McKinley maybe involved, coming back, it would have been a nice return. But O'Shea said today, listen, I'm not going to pick him just because it's a romantic pick. Mm. Uh, and he, I think Ian McKinley responded pretty well. He said, I want to give you a headache uh, further down the line. But a bit of a shame not seeing him involved, I think. Absolutely. Well, I uh, mistakenly said in the first half that Ireland's defence wouldn't be tested. Uh, we are doing defences now. We're doing we? defence now. We're doing defence now. <laughs> um, but it, it, like, we mentioned earlier as well, um, and it was you who was explaining it to me earlier before we came on, how integral Rob Kearney is to the kind of defence that Ireland is playing. Yeah, yeah. Like Ireland have kind of slightly adapted. Like, we don't expect them to get their defence uh, tested very severely in this match, certainly. But further down the line, they're still working towards that system. We talked about that back three, getting to know each other a little bit better. I think this is one area. Um, they've kind of slightly altered how they work in the backfield and the defence. We're going to take a couple of look, uh, look at a couple of examples from the match uh, against France. Um, this is actually from the very first kickoff, and we kind of we, we'll see all Ireland fall into the structure. Conor Murray clears the kick. You see CJ Sander with his hand up there. They get a good uh, good uh, kick chase, which is always a strength for them. They want to get beyond that halfway and meet them. And just, we notice Conor Murray just in here. Uh, he's kind of falling into that traditional kind of sweeper role, just in behind the line, and, and you maybe expect him to stay in that position. What happens actually is France come back to the right here, and by now you can see Conor Murray, he's up in the defensive line. And like, he's such a good defender, he's such a big scrum half. It makes sense, like Ruan Pina has probably got like that as well. It makes sense to have him up there making tackles. You see what happens here. Good communication from Furlong inside him. Murray puts Cameron into touch. Immediately Ireland are getting a chance to attack. Um, and they've, they've, they've put him into the defensive line. You see him here, it's a, a kind of multi-phase attack. He's in the line straight away every single time. Ireland actually got 13 defenders in their defensive line now. That's kind of the change you see on the outside edge there as well. Um, and Murray's making these tackles. Look, there he is again, low tackle. Furlong comes in high, they win another advantage line. Um, but just in behind the defensive line, 
we're going to see here. I don't know if you can see, just Keith Earls is here. And then off screen is Rob Kearney back here. So 13 in the front, front line, fill it up with bodies and let two guys patrol the backfield a little bit deeper like than you would generally have your, your wingers sitting off maybe. Um, and we're going to look at the, the kind of overview. This is what you're looking at from but the from a coach, line. From a coaching perspective, co like playing against Ireland, you got the, the chip is on all the time. Like exactly. it, ha it has to be on all the time. And if Conor Murray's in the front line, a lot of the times when Ruben Pienaar got into the front line, it was more to put pressure on um, the out half who's going to kick. Yeah. You know, so he, Ruan never really put in massive tackles like uh, Conor Murray. For, for me, it's only a matter of time until teams go, right, hold on a second. And it's not once. It's, you could do it five or six times a game and get a bit of change out of it. So, yeah. Like, there, yes, there's it, the it works against France, but like, you know, the Italians are going to be looking at this. That's a really interesting test. Maybe against England, against Wales, Scotland, you have that attacking chip game, Finn Russell. Well, you've got two, two men in the back line for England that could potentially do that as well, like as opposed to this conventional one. Exactly. Yeah. So you have those two defenders in the backfield, but you can see that space there. Like it's a, it's a big old space. Um, and in traditional kind of uh, defensive setup, if we just look onto our next slide, just here, you'd have the fullback uh, sitting in there. And then, you know, if this winger, if France attacks this side, the, the, the winger on that side can move up, the fullback goes around, Over, yeah. you get that pendulum motion. Um, it's a lot more difficult to do when you're here with two guys in the backfield. You know, this winger shoots up here when France attacks that side and, and they have to cover all that space. Yeah. Now, one of the things, if we go on and look at, at a couple of more examples uh, that Rob Carney gives you is that really good positional play. He's in here, he's one of those guys in the, t in the backfield um, and he's on that right-hand side of the pitch. Jacob Stockdale is on the, on the far side in the backfield. Uh, Ireland make a couple of tackles in midfield. You can see there already, Carney's moving across. He's trying to both cover that chip space and get across so that when Stockdale comes up here, he can be in that left-hand side role in the backfield. It's, it's, it's a huge demand on one guy, but Joe, uh, Joe Schmidt loves Rob Carney's positional play. You see Conor Murray, there he is again, in the line making a tackle. And by the time France come on to this next phase, there's Jacob Stockdale. He's come up from the backfield. Rob Carney's gone all the way across here and now Keith Earls has dropped into this position, so they still have those two in the backfield. Um, and France plays to the edge. Again, good read from Rob Kearney. He gets all the way up, we see him on the edge here, and makes that tackle. But it's a lot of ground to cover for, for a 15. And when you have been doing that all match, here he is again, he's gonna try and cover that chip space, and he's gonna get it all the way across there. When you've been doing that all game, the opposition just needs one chance, as you mm -hmm. say. Someone like uh, George Ford and Owen Farrell, um, and you see the Ireland line speed, they've got those 13 men in the line, there's the advantage, look, big hit behind the game line. Yeah. But we go a couple more phases on, and there you go, look, Rob Kearney's just maybe slightly switched off, he's out of shot, just back here. Um, and there's the space, you know, a really good 10, there's Bello, he's inexperienced. A really good 10 there, demands the ball, he gets one of his outside backs, chasing through onto that chip, and they exploit that space. Instead, France, you know, carry it up again, and, and there's that low chop tackle, brilliant from James Ryan, really good technique, they get the turnover. But I think you're right, I think that space is there, and that's going to be a really interesting battle for, for, for Ireland going against those big teams. We did want to just look at the try as well. Uh, very different circumstances, obviously. Uh, France played that quick line out to Dupont here. And you talk about guys rushing up out of line. Murray makes that decision uh, there, and he doesn't make the tackle. However, there should still be that secondary chase line. Um, They've got a great chasing line now. They, they have a good secondary it's line beautifully there. Set up. Look it's beautifully at set up. Just make a wrong decision. Yeah, the, and the issue is like, like we're talking about that, why you play the same backline again. It's just familiarity. So it's actually uh, just here on the edge. It's Rob Kearney and Bundy Aki. Yeah. And they're in great position there. But just as they advance up, you can see Aki just kind of eases off and Kearney goes up ahead of him. So suddenly they're just slightly disconnected, aren't they? 
and what really should be, you know, Conor Murray gets stepped there, or really should be a two-on-two two there, actually becomes a two-on-one because Carney's shoulders slightly come in. Mm. Is he getting much shaft from Bundyaki? We don't know, but uh, Dupont is able to put Teddy Tomah away down the touchline. Uh, Jacob Stockdale probably gets caught in his heels. Probably needs to go and own that space a little bit, but it just points to that slight lack of familiarity between Carney and Aki, and that's a that's a big challenge. <laughs> because Carney is a famously good communicator. I mean, we've heard uh, like you'll get it all the time, presumably going to Leinster pressers where the likes of Larmer or Carberry, if he's playing, um, well, not so much Carberry, but if Larmer is playing fifteen or sorry on the wing and Carney is. 15, he will wax lyrical about how Carney guides him and he tells him like, you know, literally if it's a case of like take two, take two steps backwards and yeah. the young guys at Leinster listen to Carney so well and like presume Schmidt is uh, quite fond of that as well, having Carney there. So with Aki, is it literally a case of because he hasn't been in the team for long, like that he's just not, whereas I suppose like Carney will be verbal with young guys, maybe when he's playing for Ireland he doesn't need to be quite so verbal because people are so familiar with each other you almost don't yeah. need to say it and Aki is new. I think you still need that communication all the time. It's interesting to hear from you what, what Rob is like in the backfield because you yeah. need that assurance, don't well, you? It's been a long time since I played with Rob but um, I think covering that amount of mileage in the backfield is going to take its toll not only physically but mentally. Mm. So when a ball is kicked like that you know, Rob's just coming up He's filling a hole he's, he's probably absolutely knackered you're coming towards the end of the game mm. and you know, he just makes a decision to hit in. Like, you, you know that you're going to have inside support there. And Rob's bound to know that he's the last man. So why why would Rob hit in there? Do you know? And, and I think it's, yes, it's probably poor communication between Rob, Bundy, and, uh, and whoever else is in, is, is in that uh, secondary line. But Rob's got to be, Rob's got to know that he's the last man on the end of the line and that there's only one guy outside him. And Jacob Stockdale, everybody's giving him a hard time about not catching him. Like, he has to turn and go. The yeah. other guy's running three-quarter yeah. pace before he gets into fifth gear to put his head down for the post. But Jacob has to stop and go. Uh, like, we all know we've watched Jacob Stockdale score and tries this, uh, this season. He, he's a very fast guy, but so is Teddy Toma. Mm. You know, he is electric. So I, I just think that's a good try for the French. You know, one small little mistake at the top level can cost you seven points, and it did. Um, and again, it's just about learning from it. And again, should the kick have went into touch? Yeah. Possibly. Get it off the field, reset, go again. Yeah, like your point about the, the fatigue in, in Carney is really important, because we just looked at him covering so much ground and as that develops in games, it's going to be really interesting to see how teams look to exploit it. Like, that's obviously unrelated to his backfield play, mm. but it is, a, it is an accumulative effect of running a lot of metres across the pitch. It'll be really interesting to see his GPS data and see if it's changed a lot. But um, I think it's going to put a big stress on Ireland with those two in the backfield. It's going to be fascinating to see how teams look to exploit it. I remember like this time last year, uh, we were doing something down in Cork, and at the time, the discussion, probably typical, typically because we were in Cork, was that Simon Zebo was a better 15 than Rob Kearney anyway at that juncture, respectively, in their careers. With Zebo out of the picture, I suppose it's, it's easy to suggest, yeah, Kearney is the guy there, considering Larmer hasn't played for Ireland yet. But where do you stand on Rob Kearney now? Because he, he's a man who obviously gives enormous effort. He's been there long enough. He's done incredible things in the Irish jersey. Just takes a lot of flack publicly, I guess. Like, do you still think he's an elite level, international caliber 15? Yeah, he, he's, he's world class. Like, he made one small error, uh, mm. and uh, that was just a miscommunication. 
Um, the rest of the game, I thought he was top drawer. Some of the the covering that he made yeah. uh, with a with a hack through, and yeah. um, I, I thought like he is an unbelievable player. He is rock solid. And the thing I like about Rob is he does all his talking on the pitch. You very rarely hear him off the pitch doing interviews, um, and everybody criticizes him all the time. He doesn't have the X factor like Simon Zebo. Like I think Simon Zebo is a world class player also. But Rob Carney for me is is a Rolls Royce. Like he's just he's very he makes very few mistakes. Um, and in international rugby, whoever makes the fewest mistakes in a match will win it. And that's that's what it boils down yeah. to. So Zebo, what? Sorry, go on. The things he does are less glamorous. Like you mentioned that covering when when James Ryan kind of forced an offload, they have yeah, through. Yeah. Unbelievably composed. He gathers it one handed, gets get back up, up, rides a challenge, lets guys get back round. You see him in the air a few times. Some of his running lines as well. We looked at kind of bad decoy plays. Every time he gets the line right, he hits rocks well. Little things like that that Schmidt loves. Um, so like yeah, I think he offers so much and also gives great interviews. You mentioned he didn't talk much, but <laughs> yeah. he's a good speaker. So longer he lasts, the better. <laughs> if Zebo was, uh, I suppose, a feasible option, I mean, he probably technically is. But if he wasn't kind of out of the reckoning for moving away, and the decision was yours, on based on current form, I suppose for provinces, you still pick Carney over Zebo at the moment. If I was picking a team to play against Italy this weekend, I think probably rest Rob Carney and play yeah. Simon Zebo. To know where you're in a. You're in a Grand Slam decider in Twickenham and Paddy's Day on the 17th of March. Can't wait for that, actually, yeah. <laughs> the slam is on. The slam's on. Um, I would probably pick Rob Carney. Do you know? Uh, so it, it's just different guys. Like they're completely different. Like, mm. you know, they really are. Uh, and Simon's publicly come out and said that he can't play the, the way Joe's kind of structure, structure, structure. He's publicly come out and said that. So, uh, but yeah, I think Simon's a fantastic player also, like, yeah. Fair enough. Um, we'll take a couple of more questions from you guys. I know uh, speaking to some of you at the break there, you had some interesting ones. Don't bottle it now. <laughs> it's your time. It's your time. Down the back, a couple of hands down the back there. Yeah, like great question. I think it's really interesting that since the last World Cup, the massive focus for Ireland has been depth, depth, depth. They always talk about it. I think we've seen them develop that. Like, think back to that Argentina match. Yeah, they did have a shocker of a twenty first uh, first twenty minutes. But like, you're missing Johnny Sexton, you're missing Paul O'Connell, who's your defensive line uh, leader. Uh, you're missing Jared Payne, Sean O'Brien. Peter uh, O'Malley, like unbelievably important players and they just didn't have the backup. Like the guys who came in obviously battled hard but the, the next layer of quality wasn't quite there. So we talk about consistency. I think Joe Schmidt's teams are quite consistent in their performance. They're always at a, at a high level. They may not always be 100% but they're always up 95, 96. Um, and I think now they have that depth. You've seen Andrew Porter come in, he's ready. You've seen James Ryan come in, he's ready. Stockdale, I think Larmer is ready. Like all these guys who have come in have actually added to the squad and I think if they were to suffer unbelievable injuries like that again in the next World Cup, I think they'd probably manage it a bit better. Yeah, I totally agree. I think <clears throat> it's important to kind of emphasise the fact that it doesn't matter if it's business or, or, or rugby, like if you take four leaders or four senior managers out of this pub, it's probably not going to function as well as it would when they have those guys there. So 
like it, it, when those four guys were missing, you know, Johnny Sexton, obviously the leader of them all. For me, I th always thought they were going to struggle. The, listen, I thought like every other Irish fan that they were going to win it, yeah. but you know, it, it just didn't happen. So I totally agree with your point. Um, strength and depth. If Johnny, for some reason, went down, I think the, every, everybody could turn to turn to Joey or, or turn to Keats or whoever's you know going to be ready at that time and, and, and say that he'll be able to do a job. But Joe is going to be judged on this next World Cup. I think he's going to have a lot of pressure on his shoulders. Um, and yeah, like all these games for a lot of Irish fans, yes, of course they matter, but everybody just wants to see Ireland break history records and get the semi-finals and get the final because we all know that's what they're capable of. For me, Ireland, England and New Zealand obviously are the three teams to beat in world rugby, full stop. So it would be an absolute shame if Ireland didn't reach a semi-final in Japan come 2019. You know, and, and I think that's what that's what Joe's going to get judged on come that time. I'd say he breathed a sigh of relief when he saw Scotland getting hammered by Wales because in November they look pretty good and you have them in your pool and you're kind of wondering, geez. Well, that's gonna... what they get for not voting for Ireland for the World Cup, bid. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they get. Wales are going to get it this week. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah, well, I think um, there is scope for it, but the way that Joe Smith has been picking his team, I'm not sure he's 100% sold on his 12 and 13. Like, everybody's crying out for Robbie Henshaw to play 15, and everybody's crying out for other guys to come in and play 12, and, you know, when Ring Rose is fit, is he going to be playing 13? And it just kind of seems like that 12-13 combination is a little bit up in the air. But I would go back and say if England had a couple of better options at 12 and 13, that probably Farrell would be playing 10. Um, and yes, that combination has worked well over the last number of games. But I've watched Ford regularly playing for Leicester and he really, really struggles. Like, it just, I just don't see this complete polished out half that, um, that competes well in an English jersey. I think so much of all England's incredible play comes through Farrell, because I think, just think Farrell is a class above nearly every other out half in the world, bar maybe Johnny Sexton. So, uh, yeah, of course there is scope there. I'm not sure who would yeah. slot in at 12, but um, yeah, I don't think there's anybody as good at passing 12 as Owen Farrell at the minute. Yeah, he's magic. I, I think it was interesting though on the Lions tour, like yeah. Farrell went, he almost usurped Johnny and went into that first test as 10, but they had to turn to Johnny in the end to, to kind of come back and, and control the team. I, I don't know if Farrell really handled the 10 position really well in that tour. Obviously, it's unbelievably difficult against the All Blacks. And I think he works really well just having that little bit of extra time. Like you talk about his distribution, like some of the lines that England are running off are incredible. And to be able to do that one set of hands out the line is unbelievably effective. Like we kind of mentioned it there, I think Johnny Sexton gets frustrated at times that there's not someone else making those decisions further out the line. And Robbie Henshaw's probably not comfortable yet doing that. Joey Carby is the obvious one. Like I'd love to see the two of them on the pitch, even if it's for. 20 minutes at the end of the match. I'm, I'm sure Johnny's going to come off and they'll, they'll take care of him, but I think it'll be brilliant to see the two of them 
uh, and, and not all that responsibility on Johnny. Maybe he can just distribute sometimes and, and Carberry is built to shape around himself further out the line. Just a different picture for the attacking you line. See, you see Robbie and you see Bundy, you know, when they, they don't take the ball to the line, they fall off their passes. You know, you watch Owen Farrell, he goes to the line, he's yeah. throwing bullets, you know, to, to the players coming on it, onto it. But just to go back, like Johnny Sexton, Owen Farrell, when I was on the Lions tour, doing a bit of work over there, and uh, one of the players was in the end goal area and Sexta was, or Farrell was in the end goal area and Sexta was on the halfway line and they were kicking, so that he would kick, then he would kick and the ball was literally on a sixpence for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And I went, Jesus, this is impressive. And then they started doing it with, with drop kicks and they would drop kick the ball to each other, drop kick, drop kick, back and forth, 40, 50 metres and like literally straight into their hands. They didn't have to move, they didn't have to break stride. And I was just looking at this going, these two guys are, this, this is crazy, like if that was me, <laughs> and then a fall on my arse, the ball would go miles over that way. It'd just be a complete disaster. So like, I heard the same, similar, very, very similar story with O'Gara and Wilkinson when they were on the Lions tour together, that they were doing exactly the same thing. So um, all that practice paid off with a 45 metre drop goal on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Ireland have, Ireland have said they considered, I think, um, Joe, bringing Joey onto the pitch and, and doing it. And as you say, like two kickers, like that's another thing. It's not just the passing. It's having another kicking option at the back. Even against France, there are probably times where they could have put it in, even a grubber on a, on a wet day, slide it on the ground, make it difficult for Geoffrey Palis on, on, his, on his debut uh, for France. They didn't have that out the line, you know, Robbie Hensha's not really that comfortable doing it, so I think it's a good point, I think it will be good for Ireland just to test it out even for, for 20 minutes. Yeah, I'd love to see it happen. Anybody else there? So, Can you hear me? There you yeah, go. Yeah, we can, yeah. Um, just in regards to development, uh, you were kind of talking about Conor O'Shea there, and uh, he might not see any of the fruition from the work he's putting in, uh, but the, the Leinster Academy um, seem to be pumping out a lot of players, and you see Larmer now on the team. Uh, and I was looking at the under 20s, there's I think 15 in the match day, 23. Um, just with regards to Ulster um, and the academy, would they look at copying like what's in Leinster or if Stephen was in charge there, what would he do? Yeah, well, I think a lot of the coaches actually um, have went back and forth. We look at Johnny Bell over the years at Ulster, he went down to New Zealand to kind of learn from them um, and they kind of piggyback on each other. But for me, like if the Leinster Academy model blueprint is working, why would you not just try and implement exactly the same structure? Um, and I think maybe you know with the comments that Bryn Cunningham made there during the week about Ulster Rugby that that's something that they will do. That's something that they're gonna they're gonna look at and, and look at who's doing it well and try and try and not copy it but put their own own style onto it. But the academy at the minute with with Ulster, it seems just very, just seems like it's been the same for the last four or five years. You know, we're not producing. Yeah, you get a, uh, you know, a diamond once once or twice a year, and that's it. Where there seems to be diamonds just coming off the conveyor belt at Leinster. You know, it's just it's just insane. And I go back to touching the point about all the YDOs that were relieved of their jobs. Um, you know, where Leinster just seemed to be adding more people to the Leinster machine that just keeps ticking along and, and, and they need to not only put money into that but they need to get people to buy into it uh, but there's, there's talk now of, of the youth um, is it going to be disbanded, done away with? Is the youth the, system The youth system, uh, yeah We discussed it a bit I think Like which would be, yeah. like I came through the youth system Shawnee O'Brien came through the youth system Shane Horgan I think came through the youth system like. Yeah. If that was done away with, 
I do think there are if you're trying to look in other areas as well as that like you mentioned population earlier on like that is a factor definitely with Leinster no matter what but it's not the only factor like you talk about the Leinster Academy but the Leinster Academy is almost the Leinster Schools Cup now like the players coming out of there are unbelievably well prepared if you're in St Michael's you're in on 7am 7, 7 in the morning doing your scrum half passing analysis at lunchtime out for a session in the evening and probably analysis but you, but, well. but you have Methody and you've Campbell and you've Inst and you've Regan Christians and, and Prez as well. They're in the house there <laughs> <laughs> down south. And you, like, are they tapping into that enough though? Are they? Are they? You know, Stuart Lancaster's out doing. I believe they are, but I don't believe they're doing it right. Yeah. Do you know? So they're, they're getting in there lifting weights at seven o'clock in the morning. But what is actually? Why are you getting in to lift weights? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to get bigger? Are you nursing an injury? Well, this is what you have to do instead of getting in and just throwing around ten. And yeah. there's not not really any uh, you know any focus behind it of what you're trying to achieve, you know. And, and I think that's where Leinster have got to bang on. Leinster they're employing guys in the school rugby just to come in and coach rugby, yeah, yeah. And, and and get paid well. But they're doing a freaking fantastic job, yeah. and they're a feeder to the Leinster team, so it's working great. And, and they're all playing a great brand of rugby. Like go down to Donnybrook, and the matches are unbelievably entertaining. The shape that they use in attack is literally the same as any professional team. Um, and you talk about those YDOs, but Leinster have really. They've dripped everything down from the, the professional level down into the schools and they're basically set up to play like Leinster play. Like Stuart Lancaster's going out and doing yeah, seminars. I read that, read that interview last week with uh, one, of, one yeah. of the Michaels coaches, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was giving give an interview. Like, once you're getting that, as you say, get that methodology into that level of rugby and it's going to pay off in a, in a few years. Oh. Anyone else before we... Uh, oh, there's one here. Just uh, Well, whichever order. Oh, yeah. Um, you mentioned that... Uh, we saw the World Cup when four big big players go down, that there wasn't a huge amount of people coming behind them. Now we've got a, a fairly good amount of depth in most positions, but behind Conor Murray there isn't really a huge, a lot, huge amount. Uh, we saw Luke McGrath not getting used at the weekend and now he, he's not even on the bench anymore. Um, Schmidt doesn't really play his sub-scrum halves uh, before the 75th minute. Um, is there, are Luke McGrath and Kieran Marmion not good enough or like they show for Connacht and Leinster that they can do it in, in Europe? What's, what seems to be going on? They're, they're not as good as Conor Murray. No. And that's why Conor Murray's on ahead of them. And, you know, in such a tight game, Conor Murray was making those tackles and like that pass to Johnny Sexton on 82 minutes, 38 seconds, like landed absolutely perfectly. Yeah. And that's why he was dead on the pitch. Do you know, um, I believe Joe does trust the other scrum halves and they will be given opportunities. But like if a World Cup quarterfinals being played and Johnny Sexton's not playing and Conor Murray's not playing and Luke McGrath is and um, whoever this, the 10 is at that time, I still think they would have, they should have enough um, experience in their team to, to get a win no matter who they played. Uh, is there an argument to be made like, so you mentioned there that uh, Murray is so good and therefore you leave him on it. Like he's integral for 80 minutes if you can keep him on for 80 minutes. But that the other two are actually ready. I mean, I, I can't help but think of when Marmion comes on on the wing against Australia and does a job. And like, I know Schmidt was down to his bare bones at that point, but he still trusted him to go on to the wing against a very physical winger and, and do a job. Like, is it just that maybe we won't necessarily see them as often? prove that they're ready and when yeah. they're called upon that they might actually be ready on the day. Yeah. So I suppose there aren't many test matches where you can really experiment. He's talking about doing it in Australia. I think we'll probably see Ty Byrne come in. We'll probably see Marmion and McGrath get an actual start. But they're in the middle of this championship. They have to win every game. They're not thinking about development now. 
Um, I think like the pressure's on McGrath and Marmy and themselves as well, just to get up to Murray's level on like box kick, on consistency of pass, on being physical and being present in defence as well. Like they got to get up to his level. The challenge is really on them, and if they're knocking on that door, then Schmidt will, will definitely give them their chances. Uh, I think we've got one more question up the front here. Uh, we should be able to hear you. Yeah, we'll, we'll be able to. Yeah, yeah, work away. <laughs> um, you were saying earlier about how um, you've got James Ryan and Ian Henderson and other people being able to play multiple positions. And again, like you've got Farrell who can play 10 and 12 and stuff. Do you think there's a bigger emphasis now in rugby on people being able to play multiple positions? And with that, do you think there's a danger that you've got people like Ian Madigan who have been switched around too much and the talent is almost wasted? Yeah, do great you question. That's the problem. Um, I wouldn't say it's a problem. I think Mads, uh, I just <coughs> excuse me. I just don't know about Mads, like the the way he was kind of brought in to fill Johnny Sexton's boots. The way it all happened, um, he wasn't given that much game time at, at ten playing for his country. So I think in the pack it's different. You have Mario Toji, Courtney Laws that can jump about, and the, I think it's completely different. And the exception of uh, Owen Farrell, like you know, I think he could play anywhere in the, in the back line and still look a class act. So I think there's only maybe a few players out there in world rugby specifically that could bounce about the back line. Um, and Mads, unfortunately, was one of those players that seemed to just be, you know, the guy that could cover all positions and so was put on the bench. And um, I think that's why he ended up making a move was because he wanted to play ten and and kind of establish himself. And you never know, you might see him back here at some stage, but. Um, I think it's I think it's a great asset to have if you're if you're able to cover a couple of positions um, and yeah especially in the pack because if there's a couple of injuries you know a back rower could go down in the first four or five minutes the back rower comes on and the second row just the amount of collisions that there now is yeah. in the game that you got to be able to step in there and it's great that I think Ireland have those options. Just on Madigan coming into that quarter final like Joe doesn't make many selection mistakes at all I don't think every time someone questions why the hell is Fergus McFadden on the bench. He comes on and helps them win a match with an unbelievable clear out, a couple of carries. Scrap. But if Scrap. You think, <laughs> <laughs> it's all that. If you think back to before that World Cup, though, against Italy that year, like Ian Keatley played a match at 10, and yep. Madigan could have got a chance there. So I think Schmidt rarely makes those mistakes, but that was one where he, where he didn't give him that exposure at 10. Do you think um, Joey Carberry is the answer, though, if Johnny Sexton went down? I think he is now. I think Joe really trusts him, and he wants him to play 10. I think he mentioned in the presser today, he kind of subtly put a bit of pressure on Leinster. Hopefully he'll get a game next weekend okay. during the break week. I think he wants him to play 10. and He was probably a bit frustrated when he came on that Montpellier match at yeah, fullback. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I think Joey's a good example. Like, Is he a 10? Is he going to be switching between 15 and 10? I think he probably wants to settle. Like, He wants to play 10. and Hopefully we just see him get uh, more game time there. But, but as a player, if you're focusing on a couple of positions, is there a danger then that you'll never become, like you'll never fulfill your potential in one position? Like, you, I, you know, cross pollination in sport, but like say John O'Shea or somebody, like versatility can be an asset to a coach, but not necessarily to a player in terms of stepping up to that elite level. No, um, like for me, I, I, I always had to learn the second row's line out options. So, like, you know, if a second row went down, I had to be thrown in there. But I, I learned those options because it almost helped me learn my options too, right. to a certain extent. So, okay. it almost made my roles um, easier for me to learn. Uh, so, does that answer your question? I don't know. Whoa, what's your oh, question? It's a stupid right? question. I'll tell you what. <laughs> you're, not getting, you're not getting the two tickets. No. <laughs> I bought that one. That was my chance. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll give away the tickets in a couple of minutes. Let's finish on the championship as a whole, right? We're off to a decent start. Uh, England, Scotland, 
I mean, Jesus, if Scotland don't have some sort of maniacal Celtic backlash after what went yeah. on last weekend, they're in serious trouble. How do you see that going? Yeah, you I, were very impressed by England, of course, at the I weekend. Was. Like you've seen with Scotland, Greg Laidlaw comes back in at nine. I think that says a lot. They're going to kick more. They're going to try and be more solid. You can't just you can't just play um, offloading and, and counterattacking rugby at test level. You have to also have those uh, kind of basics covered off. Wales were extremely impressive, and, and we saw the benefit of that cohesion of the ten. Scarlet's players coming in, basically the same game plan, really good decisions from their forwards, whereas Scotland's forwards made poor decisions. Wales are the interesting one, they've kind of emerged as the contenders. Um, look, England were playing against a poor Italian side, but I thought they were extremely impressive. Like the, the running lines, even on phase three, phase four of, of a set piece, they're still running these unbelievable lines. And when forwards are able to give a pass, you know. Exactly, yeah. Just like there's one, multiple one to options. 15, there's just so many options. Like they do look very, very dangerous. We should have known, really, shouldn't we? That the Welsh, <laughs> like they always do it. Like you, you, write, you write them, I mean, like you, you can talk about their autumn, you can talk about on the back of lines towards things like that. But like, even though they were decimated, they've won regional side playing unbelievable ball and all of a sudden they're playing pretty much the same ball at a higher level arguably and they're right in the mix now. Yeah, I think I think Scotland though like they'll be possibly slightly embarrassed like with the way they they pitched up. It's, that they know that isn't the Scotland team that's going to pitch up this weekend. Um, they give Wales too many easy outs like it was just it, it just wasn't, you know, characteristic of them. Um, and I think you know, with all the talk and all the hype everybody's been kind of you know, mm. feels like the Scotland, the Scottish lads have been walking around with their chest puffed out since the Autumn Internationals. Right. And then, bang, they're straight back down to earth again. Um, uh, and they need to get themselves back up a few levels. I believe they'll come, maybe not come good, but they're going to get better throughout the tournament and they can't make the same, mistake, the same mistakes again for sure. Is there a chance in Murrayfield for them to just right the wrongs? and? Yeah, of course there is. Like they're they're going to have that massive emotional backlash uh, from being embarrassed, and I think they're always going to get a response. He's, I think he's made smart changes to his team, Gregor Townsend. I think you'll see them be unbelievably scrappy in defence, uh, really aggressive, and yeah, you definitely can see them bouncing back. Alternatively, if they lose, then they've lost all momentum, and they potentially going into that last match against Italy, like playing for a for a wooden spoon, which would be an absolute disaster considering November. But just in that overall championship, I did like the look of England, and I'm a little bit less confident that Ireland are going to win the championship now. I still back Ireland if they keep everyone fit, especially Johnny. Um, we've seen how important he is, but England do look uh, really sharp. Are you revising your prediction? Is that what you're saying? I'm not going to back out you're my prediction. You're backing I'm England, back. are you? <laughs> I'm not going to back out. I think Ireland will still sneak the championship, but I'm less confident. What about yourself? I just think there's something about this Irish team that can, that can really do it. Like we've, We don't have a bad record in Twickenham. Like I've, I've won there myself. Um, things start going badly and I, I know we have another few games here to play before we get to that stage on the 17th but if we get there like we spoil, spoiled England's party last year like I think the boys can can do it I think it'll keep the momentum going three home games three wins you're going to Twickenham Grand Slam on the line jeez I, I wouldn't like yeah. to be an English man trying to stop the Irish that day that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> I love the sound of that <laughs> what do you reckon? Ireland yeah happy enough with that? That's what I was looking for. Look at this man's intensity. Like, what are you? My God! Can you? You should go down there. And we need to give away a pair of tickets. Uh, I've got the questions here. So there was the question from this gentleman here. Uh, Who doesn't have tickets? Nobody needs. <laughs> there was the question about uh, John O'Gibbs and, and Ulster. There was uh, the most physical player you've either played yeah, against yes. or trained with. Uh, question about James Ryan. 
Ireland strength and depth was another one. Question about two playmakers. Question about the academy systems. And a question about uh, Conor Murray and Ireland's sub scrum halves. Was there any that tickled your fancy? Do you want? Do, I'll give you the tickets. If you um, want it probably playmakers. Oh. Well done. Well done. Well done. Nice one. So I thought that was you. Sorry about that. Oh, that's unfortunate. Oh god. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So you, you both reckon Ireland. Uh, everyone here presumably reckons Ireland. Uh, listen, thanks a million for joining us, folks. Hope you enjoyed yourselves. Uh, who else do we need? <laughs> we're they're they're enjoying themselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After party upstairs, uh, sponsored by Volkswagen. No, I do, uh, I do want to thank Volkswagen for sponsoring us here this evening. And uh, thanks to yourselves. I'm trying to think if there's anything I'm forgetting. I don't believe so. There are... Uh, couple of books there just as you came in the door they are for sale and we'll say nothing like you know uh, <laughs> we just need to ship off the last few but they're very good read not as good as well slightly better than uh, ball and man <laughs> ball and man ball and man man and ball <laughs> jesus ball and man you talk about yeah okay yeah, i need to wrap <laughs> thanks a million listen we'll catch you next time enjoy the weekend enjoy the game and uh take care cheers 